So, right, um, we're going to carry on in our series in uh, 1 Peter um, today. So last week, um, Tom uh, introduced Peter to us. He introduced the character of Peter. So um, if you don't know, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and uh, he then went on to become what we call an apostle. So someone who leads churches, someone who plants churches, someone who starts churches, and someone who, who led many churches and oversaw many churches um, in the Middle East uh, in, uh, the, in the early, you know, in the first century. And uh, Tom uh, kind of beautifully told us the story of how Peter was restored back to relationship with Jesus. Peter had followed Jesus, had spent time with Jesus for three years, and just before, the night before, or the night or two before Jesus was about to be crucified, he denied Jesus three times in public. And you can imagine what he felt and how desolate, how rubbish, how stupid, how, you know, just, can you imagine that? And Tom told us the story of how when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, Peter was beautifully restored by Jesus, how Jesus showed Peter such grace, such forgiveness, such mercy. But more than that, Jesus also commissioned Peter. And there's this word again, commissioning. Um, Peter was commissioned by Jesus to go and build my church, look after my sheep, look after my people. And uh, we are here today as a result of Peter's um, restoration you know, we are here in this church today because of what Peter, what happened to Peter and how Jesus restored him. And we're reading one of Peter's books this morning. Isn't that incredible? 2,000 years later. And so we're going to read from 1 Peter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 9. So if you'd like to turn to it and uh, get it ready, it will come up on the screen as well. And um, 1 Peter was written around the time of kind of AD 64. So for all you history buffs out there, um, I hope I get this right, probably around 60-odd years after Jesus was born, around 30-odd years after Jesus' um, death and resurrection. And it was written by Peter, and it was written to churches in the province of Asia Minor. So for modern-day readers, that's Turkey. That's modern-day Turkey today. Um, and it was written during the reign of um, an infamous emperor, the Emperor Nero. You may have heard of Emperor Nero. He was a nasty piece of work. He was perverted, he was horrible, and uh, he did horrible things. But he also um, encouraged and wanted, and he, he deified himself. So he, you know, he asked his people to worship him. And uh, Nero was famously connected to the Great Fire of Rome, which was, uh, writ which was happened in kind of the 18th, 19th of July, AD 64. And no one, historians are divided about actually who started the Fire of Rome. And it destroyed almost half of Rome. And some people say Nero did it. Some people say, that, you know, it was just an accident. But nevertheless, what happened was that as a result of that fire, Nero blamed the Christians for starting it. They were an easy scapegoat. They were easy target because they wouldn't worship him. 
And so this started an incredible persecution. And it is, it, when you read about it, it is horrible. It's horrible what Christians had to go through under Nero. And so it's important to know this because this book that we're reading and we're looking at over the next few weeks, and these verses that we're going to be looking at today are written in that context. They are written to Christians who are being horribly, horribly persecuted. And uh, we'll come back to that as we, as we look at the passage, as we look at this, this morning. So if you'd like to turn um, in your Bibles, and let's read from 1 Peter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1. So here we go. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've blessed God this morning, haven't we? Blessed be the God of our, um, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, persecution, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, Peter's saying, I saw him, but though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. <coughs> so we often use this word hope, don't we? Um, Every, in a kind of everyday use, for something that actually might not happen. So when you live in the UK, you say, well, I hope it doesn't rain on Saturday, okay? And as you know, anything could happen on Saturday, couldn't it? There could be sleet, there could be sunshine, there could be rain, there could be anything, wind. could be a lovely hot day. We don't know. Or I might use the word this afternoon and say, I hope that my team, Brighton and Hove Albion, beat Manchester United in the FA Cup semi-final this afternoon at 4.30. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Hope that's for Brighton. Um, so, you know, anything could happen, couldn't it? You know, Brighton might have a bad day. Man, you might have a good day. I hope not, but that could happen. Anything could happen. But when Peter states that we have a hope, we have been born again to a living hope, it isn't wishful thinking. Peter's hope is based on real facts, on real history. Peter tells us that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Our Christian hope, and the reason we have it emblazoned across our building, is our Christian hope is based on facts. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter himself was talking from his own real-life experience. He had spent time with Jesus. He had witnessed the life, the death, and the resurrection. He was one of the first people to meet Jesus in person when he had resurrected. This was a fact, and his, his uh, hope was based on this fact. And if Peter's word isn't enough for you, then we have four Testimonies, four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all testify to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We have writings from pagan writers, from Jewish writers, who had no reason to say that Jesus rose from the dead, but they did. They stated it. Jesus appeared to multiple scores of people on different occasions, different times, in different places. We have historical evidence that the grave was empty. And, of course, many of the people that witnessed the resurrection firsthand, went to horrible deaths. Would they do that if this wasn't real? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And in raising Jesus from the dead, God has triumphed over the grave. Death has been dealt a mortal blow. And if that's, just, if that's not enough, the resurrection also deals with sin. It deals with the effects of sin in our lives. Jesus willingly took our place on the cross. He took the punishment we deserve for our sin, our rebellion, and as Jesus rose from the dead, the power of death and sin were defeated. And as we put our faith in Jesus, we are, it's as if we're crucified with him, we're buried with him, and then we raise to life with him again. And that's what we've been celebrating these past two weeks with these baptisms. As followers of Jesus, death no longer has power over us. We have hope of heaven. We have hope of eternity. As followers of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and its power over us is broken. So we can walk free from sin. We can walk free from its effects on our lives. And none of this has been achieved by ourselves. Peter, in these verses, makes it absolutely clear that this is a work of God. This is an act of God's mercy. We have been born again. One of Peter's fellow disciples and friends writes this, But to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. You are born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. As followers of Jesus, we have been born of God, and God now dwells in us through his Spirit. It's not of blood. It's nothing that our, because of our family backgrounds or because of you know, where we're brought up. It's not the will of man. It's like we can't will ourselves to know God. But it's because of God's mercy. He came to us. He has made us born again. And he qualifies us. And this is wonderful news. And Peter starts this, his, his um, book with this news. We have been born of God. And he starts with, a pra with praise and worship. He says, blessed be God. Blessed be God, because of God's great mercy, he's, he's, we have been called, born again, to a living hope made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This isn't wishful thinking. We're not here this morning hoping that for the best. This is based on fact. Based on fact. This is living hope. 
And I want to expand on this living hope this morning. I want to talk about four things about living hope. And I hope, and my prayer is that it changes our perspective on our salvation. And it also helps us to see that we are marked out as different. We are different, and there's a reason for it. The first thing is that God foreknew you. In verse 2, Peter writes this, To those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Bible tells us that we are exiles in this world. And sometimes that can sound kind of negative, can't it? It can have a negative connotation. But Peter uses this phrase, elect exiles, for a reason. What does he mean by that? He means that we have been chosen. We are elected. We've been voted for, called by God, rescued from darkness, rescued from death, rescued from sin, no longer hostile to God, no longer enemies of God. And if that's not enough, he expands it in verse 2 where he says we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. What does this word foreknowledge or foreknow mean? Where is it used other times in the Bible? Well, it's used when um, Adam knew Eve. It talks of intimacy. It talks of being uniquely committed. The act of marriage is a unique commitment. That's where the word foreknow is used before. Or in Genesis 18, verse 19, where God said about Abraham, I have chosen or I have known him. God set his favor on him. He was aware of him. He took note of him. God has taken note of you. In Amos 3, verse 2, where God says to Israel, you only have I known. Well, of course, God knew other nations. God knew other peoples. But for Israel, God had taken special, intimate, relational knowledge of his people. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3, where it says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And this is what Peter has in mind when he writes in in 1 Peter, By the foreknowledge of God. You are elect exiles, yes, but you've been chosen. Chosen by the foreknowledge of God. And this, is, this knowing is intimate. It, he's uniquely committed to you. He has set his favor on you. He's aware of you. He regards you highly. God regards you highly. And Paul writes in Ephesians that he has, we have been chosen before him, before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. He writes also that we have, there is, God has prepared good works for us, that God has prepared in advance for us, before we were saved. God knew you in eternity, and he chose you in eternity. Yes, we are exiles. We don't belong here, but we are identified as elect exiles. We are rooted in eternity in God's foreknowledge, by God's foreknowledge. Before time, God knew you, and after this present time, you will be with God. And I don't know about you, it blew Peter's mind, and it blows my mind. Before the world was formed, God knew me. As he was creating the world, as he was flinging stars into space, as he was causing the sea to appear, God knew me. God knew you. As history unfolded, as dinosaurs roamed the earth, as cavemen came out, I'm struggling here, as as, uh, 1066 happened, as the Second World War happened, God knew you. God knew you. 
He knew me when I was formed in my mother's womb. And on that day in April 1980, when the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, God awoke my soul. He forgave my sins. He gave me new life, a life that he had been planning for me in eternity. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible, everyone? Not just about me, about you. (laughs) This brings such hope, doesn't it? Such hope to our lives. God is in control. When the doubts come in, am I worthy? Well, God knew you. God knew you when he was creating this world. Have I got a purpose? Well, yes, of course you have. God knew you. Have I? I've got no value. I don't mean anything. I'm nothing. I'm ignored. No one knows me. Well, actually, God knew you. You are God's workmanship. And you are free now from the dirt and the grime and the sin that entangles the world. Secondly, we have an inheritance. In verses 4 and 5, Peter writes, We are called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. People do all sorts of things, don't they, to secure an inheritance on this earth. People will hoard, they will deceive, sadly, Families split up over inheritance. And sometimes people even kill over inheritance, don't they? When my granddad and nanny died, my parents and my uncles and aunties, they cleared their house. And to their surprise, they found money to the value of thousands of pounds stashed away everywhere, in pockets, in cups, in books, in cupboards. And in Luke 12, Jesus um, told us a story of a man who spent his whole life storing away treasure for his future. This is what he said. He said, then he said, this is what I'll do. This is the man speaking. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. This is a stark warning, isn't it, for us as followers of Jesus. It's a stark warning to anyone, to be honest. Don't get caught in this world's trap. And I'm not saying don't save or don't have a pension plan or don't provide for your kids. Of course I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is... Watch your attitude about these things. Remember that this is now not the focus of our lives. We have been called by God from before eternity for purpose. Our purpose is not to save for things now. Peter reminds us that we have been called to much greater purposes. We have a much greater inheritance waiting for us. Earthly treasures, they spoil They decay, they fade. Some of my grandparents' banknotes were so old, they were no longer legal tender. It was pointless saving them. Jesus preached a sermon to a crowd of people, which is documented in Matthew 5 and 6. He said this, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. I don't know about you, but this is tough stuff, isn't it? And in our society, in our culture, where people are obsessed by this, where we are bombarded daily, aren't we, by comfort, materialism, personal security, Jesus' words are, are strong. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. But Jesus' heart is to train us, is to develop us. And his yoke is easier and his burden is light. And in the same sermon, Jesus graciously gives us some ideas of how we can do this. He says, look, come on, I've given you everything. Be generous with what I've given you. He says, you know, don't focus on what you eat or what you'll wear. I will provide for you. Look at the birds. They don't worry about it. I will provide for you. Go the extra mile with what you have. Seek, his, seek my kingdom first, seek my ways first, and I will look after you. And of course, as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and prompts us and guides us on how to apply this teaching. We're never left at sea, are we, with, all at sea with Jesus' teaching. And Peter reminds us here that God is preparing an incredible inheritance for us. I don't know if anyone's been watching that program race around the world recently. We've been watching it, and Canada looks a beautiful country. I would love to go there. I've always wanted to go to Australia, and I'm thinking, as I'm, I'm 50 this year, and I'm thinking the chances are getting slimmer and slimmer. <laughs> but you know what? It's fine with me, because we have a glorious future we can look forward to, endlessly exploring a new heaven and a new earth, God is infinite. His creation is infinite. It will never, we will never come to an end of it. And we are told that we will be able to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. We will reign with Jesus in eternity. God will renew all things. It will be unperishable, as Peter says. It won't decay. It will be undefiled. There will be no impurity there, no sin. It will be unfading. It won't get boring. It won't get boring. And we get a little bit now... God's blessings in our lives. We see glimpses of heaven in the church, in the family, in the Holy Spirit moving in our lives, in the word of God, God's presence amongst us. But Paul reminds us in, the book, in, in his book to the church in Corinth that what we see now is like a dim reflection. But on the day when Jesus returns, it will all become clear. It will be like bright daylight, glorious. And if that's not enough, Peter reminds us that God is keeping, he's guarding this inheritance for us. And if we overcome, we can't lose it. And he says, by God's power, we are, we are being guarded as well. God is working to keep our faith from failing. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And our inheritance is sealed by the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. It's sealed. We, have an in, we, we know that it's coming, what's coming for us because we see glimpses of it by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. This is our hope. All the world has to offer will one day decay, will be forgotten, will be spoilt by death. I have a love-hate relationship with museums and with charity shops and with antique shops. I love them because I love history. I love going to see old things. I love charity shops because I like second-hand books. 
I like antique shops because they're just interesting. But when I walk around them, I kind of love it, but I hate it. I hate it because it reminds me of everything this world has got and how it has nothing to offer. When you're looking at an old rusty hulk of an aeroplane or something, and you're thinking, okay, once upon a time, someone thought that was amazing, but now it's rusting in a field somewhere. Or when you pick up an old antique book and you think, this is brilliant, but it's kind of falling apart. That's the world we live in. It's decaying. It won't last forever. But we have a living hope into an inheritance that will not spoil, that will not fade, that will not get boring. Thirdly, you will be crowned. Peter writes in verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials in life come in all shapes and sizes. And this is, it's really difficult to talk about this. And when I read this passage, I was thinking, God, how do I talk about trials? Because I am painfully aware that there are so many people in this room who are going through some really tough things. And this is the paradox, isn't it, of our Christian faith, that we are called to glory, we're called to wonderful things, but there is suffering as well. There are trials as well. And it's good to remember that actually Peter was writing to people who were being persecuted. And we live in a fallen and sinful world. And some trials, they come as a result of the decay that we've been talking about, the decay that has set in, a world that has turned its back on God, illness, sickness, death. Some trials are are as a result of man's sin. Attitudes, fighting, strife, greed, selfishness. Some trials we bring on ourselves, don't we, by our own sinful attitudes and decisions. Some trials are are as a result of Satan's attacks. Paul reminds us in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And later on in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, Peter writes this to his readers. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. What? Have I just read that right? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Was Peter saying that God willed his readers' persecution? Is this saying that God wills our trials? Well, the answer is no and yes. No, in that God is holy. He does not sin. He does not cause sin. No, in that God is above all authority and power. He does not work with Satan or endorse Satan. It's not 50-50. It's not like Star Wars. Satan is created. Satan has been defeated. And one day Satan will be destroyed. But yes, 
in that the Bible is clear that sometimes God will allow trials to come to our lives. And as Christians, we must remember this in the context of everything else that we know about God. We know that God foreknew us. We know that he's shown us mercy. We know that he's caused us to be born again. We know that he's making us more like Jesus. We know that he's called us to a greater hope, to this inheritance that we've been hearing about. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And God works for the, love, for the good of those who love him. In our trials, we need to remember three things. Firstly, God is sovereign. Secondly, God has a higher plan for you now. Thirdly, God loves you more than anyone else does, can, or will. So why does God allow us to go through trials? Recently, we've been watching a TV series called The Gold, about the brinks Mac gold robbery in 83. And in one of the scenes, the criminal takes all these gold bars, he melts them down in his makeshift foundry, and you see the gold, as it's heated up, all the impurities come to the surface. It's called dross, I think. And in normal gold smelting, when that dross comes to the surface, it's shaved off, it's taken away to make the gold purer. And through the work of Jesus on the cross, as we put our faith in him, the Bible is absolutely clear. We are clean, we are holy, we are now saints, we have been forgiven, we are accepted but there is still dross left in our lives from our old lives, from our old sinful selves. And God is dealing with that dross through these trials. Our faith is so much more valuable to God than gold. And through trials, we are forced to rely totally on God. Our faith is made stronger. God trains us. God matures us. God develops us. And Peter reminds us that our trials are deepening God's work of salvation in our souls. It's a mystery. We don't fully understand that. But God is using our trials for his purposes, for our future inheritance. And on that day when Jesus returns, we will not regret persevering through our trials. Jesus told a story of the last day when those who have persevered will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Have you ever pondered on those words? God will praise you. God will praise you. God will say, well done. You've done well. If you persevere through your trials. In 1 Peter 5, verse 4, Peter writes, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. James writes, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who carries on, basically, under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive, receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Not only will you be praised, but you will be crowned. You will be crowned. You will be rewarded. You will be given authority to enjoy this new heaven and this new earth that we've been hearing about. And sometimes we can try and overanalyze this, can't we? In my own life, I've been through trials and I, literally, I have no explanation for it. I don't understand it. I can see in some trials a positive impact. In others, I can't. I don't fully understand what God is doing in my life. But this is a matter of faith, isn't it? This is a matter of trust. Our, our trials are not just equipping us for this life, 
God is preparing us for eternity. And trials come in all shapes and sizes. And there are people here in this room who are going through some tough things. But I also feel that God has put on my heart the everyday trials. And in my experience, it can be the smallest things, can't it? Or accumulation of the smallest things that can draw you away from enjoying God, that can draw you away from trusting in God. That, and James says, come on, remain steadfast. Don't give up. Push on, draw near to God. Don't let these things rob you of your joy or distract you from your calling. In the morning when you open your Bible and it's just a, you're thinking, I'm not getting anything out of this. Remain steadfast. Carry on. When one of your kids disobeys you, I'm not looking at the youth at this time. <laughs> Remain steadfast. When your filling comes out, or you get a migraine, or you get a cold at the wrong time, and you just think, God, I can do without this. Remain steadfast. When you come home from work feeling tainted and dirty from the world, remain steadfast. When you have an argument with your partner, deal with it, but remain steadfast. When the engine warning light comes on in the car, God, how can we afford this? Remain steadfast. When you have a crisis of confidence, remain steadfast. Maybe when you're overconfident and God is teaching you patience and humility, remain steadfast. When you know that you need to forgive someone and it's tough, remain steadfast. How do you, how do I, how do we react in these situations? Remember what James says, for when he has stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. We will be crowned. We will be glorified with Christ. Not superior to Christ, but glorified with Christ. Honoured, praised because of our faith in Jesus. And finally, our living hope brings us inexpressible joy. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter ends this part of the letter with three encouragements. He says, you haven't seen Jesus. I've seen him, but you haven't. But you love him. Loving Jesus is a miracle from new birth, from, the, from your new birth. You can't force yourself to love Jesus. And the fact that you do love Jesus is evidence of the work of God in your life. Be encouraged. Peter's saying, you don't see Jesus physically now, but you believe in him. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. The fact that you believe Jesus in Jesus is evidence of the work of God in your life. Be encouraged. Peter writes, we have deep, inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. What does he mean by this? Well, he means that our deep joy is not based on temporary, fleeting, earthly pleasures, but on the deep reassurance that one day we will see Jesus, we will be glorified, we will be crowned, we will be given new bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. And this is what it means that our joy is filled with glory. We're not just joyful because it's a happy song or because it feels good to be here, we have a deep joy that is filled with glory because we are eternal people. 
This isn't it. There's more to come. Bigger things to come. We are elect exiles. And that's what Peter is saying. This is where your inexpressible joy comes from. And the world can't offer this. Because the world's joy comes from temporary things. We have a deep foundational joy and peace. And as we end this morning, put yourself in the original reader's shoes. Can you imagine persecuted, killed, thrown out of towns, cities, places of worship, literally stood before magistrates and crowds and given the choice, worship Nero or worship Jesus. If you worship Nero, you live. If you worship Jesus, you die. Peter is saying to the early church and to us today, Friends, fellow followers of Jesus, brothers, sisters, look at who you are now in Christ. We live in a society that is increasingly hostile to God, increasingly hostile to the teachings and the ways of Jesus. And greater persecution will come, I'm sure of it. I'm not a doom merchant, it's just obvious. We are exiles, we don't belong. And sometimes you really feel it, don't you? But this is not out of control. And this is Peter's message in these verses. God is in control. He foreknew you. He called you out. You are elect exiles. You have an inheritance to look forward to. You have a living hope to look forward to. Based on the concrete fact of Jesus' resurrection, which transforms your present, you've got something... You've got so much to be thankful for now. This deep, inexpressible joy, it transforms our past. We were known by God, and it transforms our future. We have an inheritance to look forward to. We will be praised. We will be crowned. This is what Peter is saying this morning through this passage. We have so much hope to look forward to. Would the band like to come up? And I'm, we're gonna, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to... And we're going to spend some time singing and worshipping just to end. And I would really love it if you could just think about what I've been talking about this morning. Think about this living hope that you have and how does that impact your life? I think I asked the question at the beginning. I said, this living hope changes our perspective. It marks us out as different. How does it change your perspective on how you value your worldly possessions? How does it change your perspective on that joy inside you? How does it change your perspective on um, the future and the trials that you maybe are facing at the moment? We have a living hope. Let's rejoice. Let's be thankful to God this morning that he is in control. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for what you have done in our lives. Thank you that you have called us into a living hope based on the truth and the fact of your resurrection. You have defeated death. You have defeated sin. And as we put our faith in you, we, can be, we are victorious over death and we can be victorious over sin. Thank you that you have called us to a hope, to a living hope. We, have, we know that you love us. We know that we have an inheritance to look forward to. We know that one day we will meet with you and, and help us, Father, to persevere. Help us to carry on. Help us to know your strength in all the things that we go through. And may that joy be deep and inexpressible in us, I pray, Father. 
Come, Lord Jesus, and meet with us now as we spend this time praising you. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>